Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So today we are running an oldie but goodie podcast on divorce and special needs trusts. We are talking about this very timely episode, even though it's an oldie but goodie. And please forgive me as I was at the beginning of my podcast journey. So probably there's a little bit of rustiness there in um, how I delivered my podcast interview. It was Mark and I doing this podcast together. But uh, we just issued here in Massachusetts an update to our uh, child support guidelines. And in those child support guidelines, we deal with a change not necessarily a change, but really some clarifications around our language relating to how we deal with the types of social security payments that are considered income when we're calculating child support. And this is something that has, you know, that sort of kind of across the country can trip up people in disability planning and can be contentious and crossover, a crossover issue between family law, so divorce and um, child support law, and disability law. And again, comes up a lot in our practice. Um, as you probably know, many, many families suffer a divorce. Uh, some people say the numbers are higher. Some data says the numbers are higher. And some people speculate that, you know, this is due to the stressors of having somebody uh, in the relationship or having a child in the family with a disability or a special health care need. And that, you know, can impact income. It can impact people's health and sleep and livelihood and mental health and just, um, you know, just so many things. So I know it personally impacted my family for sure. And so many people that I know, so many people that we work with. So if divorce has become a reality in your family and therefore it's impacting your planning, your long-term planning and your short-term planning, and there's a crossover for you, and you're in Massachusetts, you may want to check out the new child support guidelines. The clarification is in sort of bringing up to speed how Social Security payments are counted. 
as income or not counted as income, whether you are the person, the recipient, or the person who is the um, payor. So the recipient of child support or the payor of child support. So that would be important to check out. Um, there were a couple of cases that were, you know, that were clarifying. So Rosenberg v. Marita and Schmidt v. McCulloch Schmidt were traditionally um, what we relied on for explanations on how to calculate child support and how we counted social security payments, but they have now been sort of incorporated into the guidelines. So having said that, I wanted to talk a little bit about where we're at with social security. So there has been so much talk this year in Um, the Biden administration about some broad sweeping change that has been proposed to so much about disability policy. It's exciting, but as we know, things are getting stuck right now in Congress. um, There's a lot of home and community-based services that we're trying to get passed and social security, uh, changes are also something that we are trying to get through as disability advocates. So um, I don't know if you follow disability policy, but um, the um, chair of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Social Security, Pensions, and Family Policy has introduced a bill that will improve benefit levels that haven't been updated since the 1980s. And these policies are sorely in need of a an update. And um, most people that I see who come to us for help are so confused and have a hard time following all of the complex rules around work, around, you know, where you live and the reduction in benefits that you get, depending on whether you get a little bit of help from somebody The benefit levels are so low, um, whether you're on SSI or SSDI, but particularly SSI recipients, the most you can get for a federal benefit is $794 a month, which is far less than a minimum wage. And, you know, it's impossible to live on that. So, for example, if you, you know, then have to go and live in somebody else's home, you know, whether you're squatting with a friend or a family member, then you're going to get a reduction of that benefit even further because now social security is saying, oh, well, you're getting a benefit of food and shelter because somebody else is putting you up in their house. So they're take, they take away even more of that tiny benefit that they've given you. Now, in addition to that, People are getting penalized even further because they are, you know, trying to get a job and go back to work. But if they're only able to work a little bit at today's wages, minimum wage has gone up so much, but the cost of living is so high 
that they're not able to actually work enough to be able to get out from under and live on their own. However, it's so much that it really bumps up against all of these archaic rules that Social Security has. So um, I've done programs on this before, but Social Security um, SSDI rules about work and SSDI very quickly escalate. So you work a few hours a week and you are already hitting trial work period rules and you're quickly getting cut off from your very important social security benefit, which also leads to your very important healthcare benefits. And yet you don't make enough money to be able to live on your own and also be eligible for a healthcare benefit. So it's a catch 22. The situation is really dire and social security needs a major overhaul. However, the federal government is crunching the numbers and saying, you know, we can't afford it. So I don't know what's going to happen. Things are, you know, in Congress right now, and they are, like I said, crunching the numbers and batting things around. We shall see what happens. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there, let you all know what's going on. This is the time to be talking to your policymakers. This is the time to be talking to your politicians. Please let people know what you care about, what's important to you, what's important to your families. If you need any help with that, let us know. We will tell you how to reach out to your legislators. Thanks for listening. If you care about this content, if you are enjoying this content, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It would mean the world to me. Really appreciate it. And here we go with an oldie but goodie. Welcome back, podcast fans. This is Annette Hines, your host of Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. And I am very fortunate today to have my partner and husband, Mark Worthington, with me. Today, I am going to deal with a topic and subject of uh, many recent questions, and we're going to be talking about special needs planning and divorce. Not a really fun topic, but something that's been coming up a lot lately. Um, it's been really interesting and sad. Uh, I guess we've been anecdotally seeing a rise in a lot of divorce questions and a lot of divorce planning in our practice. And I've been scanning the news, Mark, and seeing that there has been, although I don't think there have been any true studies done because it's a little early, I think that the pandemic has been showing rises in divorce rates and divorce uh, spikes in Japan, China, the United Kingdom, and here in the U.S. for the last couple of months since the pandemic hit. But I'm sure that this is not surprising to anybody, not surprising to you, right? Well, I'm still kind of nervous over the fact that you asked me to do this particular podcast with you. I was waiting to see if if you had a surprising piece of news for me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you, you don't, do you? No. Okay. No. Um, no, I think it's not because um, there are uh, people who have been able to look. It's just that there's people who've been able to put up with their coexistence because they don't have to spend a lot of time with each other 
and now some of them are forced to, and it's just kind of stressed them out too much, put them to the breaking point. I don't think that that should be a surprise. Um, I don't think that it will result in an overall total, you know, when, when all is said and done, inc uh, increase in total number of divorces has probably just accelerated a few of them, I would think. Uh, there is predicted to be a spike. Again, I'm not sure if we are actually seeing a spike. Um, there have been, because the courts have been closed here in the U.S., except for emergencies, people's divorces have pretty much been stalled out for a while. Right. So if anything, it might be an increase in filings, but not in Or in an increase in them. activity right now. Um, but what we're seeing and what we're hearing in our practice, and I think in a lot of practices that we know of in our area, is that there is an increase in activity for sure. But again, not surprising because they're, when people are forced to live in close captivity, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to put it, um, but also when there's a lot of financial stress on people, when there's a lot of stress on people in general. So close quarters, uh, financial stress, and as I think probably most people on this podcast know, um, special needs families have a higher incidence of divorce anyway, don't they? True. So in addition, when people are facing crisis and trauma, when there's loss, when um, people are, you know, in the middle of something like a pandemic, as the months go on and this becomes more of their normal and reality and the crisis becomes the normal, it's, um, you know, your adrenaline rush sort of levels out and then you start looking around and thinking, okay, I don't know that I want to live like this forever. Um, I think I'm ready to do something about this. Now, we're not obviously divorce counselors. We're not psychologists and so forth. So, um, I mean, having, having been through divorce, I, I, I think it's really good if people can avoid it. <laughs> but... Um, it, it's also right sometimes, the best thing for everybody. But what we're here to talk about, right, is some legal matters, particularly for special needs families. Right. So what's been happening for me is that I've been getting a lot of questions and a lot of direct messages um, regarding special needs planning, public benefits, et cetera, that have to do with, oh, I'm contemplating a divorce or I'm in the middle of this and I have some questions about XYZ. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit with the audience and uh, go through a few things so that we can just do some learning today about it. And obviously, if I don't cover your questions, please let me know. And what I'd like to do is I am booking a divorce attorney, a family law attorney, to come and talk with us about the finer points of the actual litigation. But today we're gonna to talk about the public benefits piece, the social security, 
the um, what to do with the support payments, the guardianship piece, and the things that impact our side of the planning. Where shall we start? Well, we need to actually separate out you know, are we talking about children with special needs or are we talking about adult children with special needs? Because the rules and the laws are going to be very different depending. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the little kids, mm -hmm. the kids under 18, because that makes a huge difference. And when you're looking at divorce for those kids, you're still looking at very straightforward, you know, fairly typical divorce planning, your your rules are going to be very similar. You still have an obligation of support under the law. And people are asking a couple of different things like, well, you know, do we need a special needs trust? And, you know, should our child support look any different for this special needs child than it looks for our typical kids? Mm -hmm. So I think we can kind of start there. Okay. And when we say 18, I... Under I, 18. Well, right. But I mean, I, are there any states left? I don't know where the age of majority is greater than 18. No. Okay. So let's start with the, you know, the kind of obvious, you know, hey, it, you have an obligation to support. And for the most part, we're going to be looking at what is going on with this child support piece. So there's a you know, a parent who's the custodial parent, there's a parent who's the non-custodial parent. And these days, many, many times, there's a, you know, a 50-50 split. So you don't have an obvious custodial parent anymore. Sometimes you have 50-50 shared custody. And um, then it becomes, you know, a little bit more about who's earning more and how you're splitting the financial resources more so than how you're splitting the time with each other. So you're looking at where are the children living and where are they spending their time as one piece and then how are you dealing with the financial piece, which is the other piece. So when you're talking about a special needs trust and child support, you're really talking about the finances. So let's just deal with that piece. So would you be thinking about a special needs trust and child support for children under age 18? And I think almost in every situation, although every situation is different, but almost always we'd be saying no. We wouldn't want a special needs trust just for child support for a special needs child under age 18. And the reason for that is. Oh, you want me to say something? Yes. Well, there's a number of things. First of all, I mean, one of them is payback, right? So I think the most obvious thing for that is that when you use a trust for child support, it has to be a certain kind of a trust. It mm -hmm. has to be an irrevocable trust. And, you know, you can only use it to pay for certain things. 
Child support in general gets paid to the custodial parent directly. And then, as we both know, because we've been through a divorce, when you as the custodial parent get that child support, you, there, there aren't a lot of strings attached. You get that payment and then you get to use it for whatever benefits the household, really. You don't have to, you don't have to show what you spent it on. You don't have to keep track of it. You don't have to. But the parent that's paying actually would love that accountability sometimes. So, so, you know, if you then turn around and say, oh, but what if we use a special needs trust? Well, now you've just added a layer of complexity where you now have all of this accountability. You've now got to do a trust accounting every year. You've now got restrictions on how you can spend it. You've now just changed the game quite a bit for that, you know, quote, custodial parent. So under age 18, it very often doesn't make sense. And that's even before we get to some of the more complicated things about a special needs trust to hold child support which we're going to get into next. So, you know, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, we're going to say, hey, just handing over that child support check to the custodial parent is probably the easiest way to go. And we're not going to be looking at having a trust for the child under age 18. Again, every situation is different, and there's always going to be that one time when we may be considering doing a trust, you know, um, and we, we can't get into every situation here in this podcast. Um, parents often ask, well, but I want to apply for Social Security SSI for my disabled child under age 18. And if I do that, then the child support's going to impact that. So why is that usually not an issue? Well, usually someone under 18 can't qualify for SSI anyway because of parental deeming. What is deeming? Well, with Social Security, if if a person, if one person has an obligation of support to another, um, that's taken into account, so that the if if the child is living with with the parents, then we have the the parents' income, assets, and so forth uh, can be taken into account in terms of uh, what the resources of the child are, and almost all the time that's going to disqualify the child from SSI. Right. So under age 18, parents have an obligation of support. That's why there's a child support order to begin with. That's why the court can actually order one parent to pay another parent to provide that child support to begin with. Right. That's Mm -hmm. what it's based on. So if there's this order of support, that means that, um, that, that support is the entire basis for not being able to get the social security pretty much. 
if two parents are actually still together, their income is going to be deemed available as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So unless parents have low income themselves, the child under age 18 is not going to qualify for SSI. Right? Yeah. Okay. So children under age 18 generally are not going to be able to get SSI. So that's a non-issue. Although the rules are a little complicated, but that's generally a non-issue. There are a few circumstances where they might get it if they're living in an institution, for example. Okay. So um, given that, it does it just makes sense for for the child support to generally go directly to the custodial parent or to the payee um, who is getting the child support order. So then we are probably not going to use a trust, but does that mean that we would not necessarily have estate planning and trusts as part of a divorce process because many people will ask, you know, should I have child, should I have a, um, should I, should I have as part of my divorce a requirement that we do planning, that we have payment into a special needs trust. So that can be, you know, part of a more complicated divorce settlement when you have young children. And that's where we start talking about life insurance. So virtually every divorce settlement has some obligation of life insurance. And we usually use this as a way of protecting the child support payments so that if the payor parent passes away before the children reach their age of majority, whatever age that child support order is going to end, it's different in every state, then the parent, the custodial parent, or the payee recipient parent is protected so that they get that support order paid out throughout the lifetime. So it's it's kind of complicated situation, but if you have a special needs kid in your mix, in your family, then there's a possibility that you may want to include a special needs trust as part of that plan and have some piece of the life insurance going into a special needs trust instead of having it all go to the custodial payee parent. But it's really going to depend on the assets, right, Mark? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, sometimes instead there's simply uh, a, a fixed sum or a fraction of the estate of the parent who dies that is specified to go and there isn't really a need to back it up with life insurance. It's kind of hard to figure out. And again, every family is going to be different and it may take 
a consultation between the family law attorney and the special needs planning attorney to have those conversations and decide what makes the best the best um, mix of you know pieces of the puzzle, if you will, in the in the plan and and what people will agree to. Some people can't get life insurance. Sometimes mm-hmm. the life insurance is too expensive. And I know you've run into this a lot with your side of the planning practice, right? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, but uh, so are you saying that even though, so should parents of young children be look, who are, who are divorcing, do they look ahead and say, well, someday our special needs child is going to be an adult. We need to do that kind of planning now as well and not wait until then as part of our divorce agreement. So that's possible too. Um, they may be looking at just protecting that child support piece, that payment, that that payment piece, Mm -hmm. but they also may be looking at, well, I also want to plan for what happens when I die. I do want to make sure that I'm planning for my estate as well. One parent may be very concerned about the other parent remarrying and the estate all going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, frankly, as we both know, it's very difficult to pin a divorcing spouse down to future estate planning. Right, but the but the the divorce agreement can do that. That, that can create an obligation that even if a parent were to uh, uh, completely cut out the the first family, right, that divorce agreement can step in if there's if there's a death and say, you know, sorry, you have to meet this obligation. It's an obligation of your estate. Yeah, can you explain that a little bit? Well, it's 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 like if you owed money, you know, if you if you had a quarter million dollar debt, it's a contractual. It's a contra- it's a contractual obligation. It's like any other debt, and it has to be paid. And if you try to circumvent it through other interesting ways, like irrevocable trusts and so forth, like that, um, those can actually be attacked too. Even though usually they can't because of fraudulent transfer laws and things like that. Okay. So you can actually do through your negotiations and your divorce, this is your opportunity to protect your special needs child or children. There's a lot in the the divorce process. You know, most people want to get through it, right? They 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 need to get through to the other side, but it is your opportunity to plan out not only during your child's minority, but when they become adults, if you have special needs children, for all these things, you need to pin those obligations down now because once the divorce is final, you have you don't have the same kind of leverage. You can go back. You can depending upon the like child support, you can always go back to reconsider, but but that's asset, way harder. Asset splits. Asset, asset splits are splits done are depending final. upon how the divorce agreement is written it can be finalized uh also uh uh uh, spousal support obligations okay can be finalized in a divorce and again we'll revisit this with a family law attorney but um 
what Mark is saying is that once this contractual obligation is made, it is enforceable. Yes. So you, you need to get, it, it really pays to spend the time to hammer out what's going to happen once our special needs child reaches adulthood, what's going to happen uh, uh, if one of us dies, et cetera, et cetera. So now we've covered, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of child support. Health insurance is is important. So you do want to, while your children are young, you do want to consider health insurance. In many states, you have an ability to be able to get Medicaid in your state as a secondary payer. And some families will also be able to, like we can in our state, get um, some assistance with their premium payments for their primary insurance if they have secondary insurance through their Medicaid. So it can really get complex. It's important to consider all your options, figure out if it makes sense to um, get your own plan, have you know your ex-spouse's plan continue to cover you. Can you, you and, can do that? Mm-hmm. You really, really need to consider all the options, figure out how your special needs child is going to best be covered. Don't automatically think that the state's going to cover them because if they have the ability to be covered under primary insurance, you have an obligation under pretty much every state to do, to do so. So it is important to get really great advice. A lot of times your divorce attorney doesn't necessarily have the depth and breadth of knowledge when it comes to public benefits. So you may want to just get a one-time consultation or pull in a one-time consultation with a special needs attorney when it comes to health insurance, not just for your kid, but maybe even for yourself. Maybe you're the one, maybe the spouse is the one with special needs issues, with healthcare issues, and you're looking at you know, a spousal support issue and not a special needs kid support issue. So I just wanted to mention that it's very complicated and hard to kind of think through all of the issues here um, in a 30, 40 minute podcast, but uh, just wanted to throw that out there. Okay. Now kids over 18, we start having even more complicated issues that pop up. Here's the really hard part for parents. So your kid, even the most profoundly impacted children are now adults. And that means that there is no more custodial parents. Even if you are becoming guardians, custodial parenthood goes away in every single state. And you have to now deal with no more visitation. It's all under whatever your guardianship laws are. And those are very different in every state. It's very different than your visitation and your, you know, whatever your original custody rules were. 
So obviously this doesn't matter for the typical kids. Right. Because they're done they're done now. And they have the right to decide who they want to live with and who they who want they to see. spend time with. Yep. And, you know, how they want to deal with both of you as parents. Your financial obligations may not be over. In fact, most states, they're not. So you uh, may be paying for college for a child who refuses to spend time with you. Yeah. And that really stinks. Yes, it does. Um, but it is what it is. Uh, a, lot, a lot of water under those bridges, unfortunately. And a lot of damage can happen in families that go through divorces. It, it's, it's, uh, yeah, the idea there is I have, it, say you have an, an intact family, you have no obligation to pay for your children to go to college. None. But in a divorce context, suddenly it's different. Uh, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me, but. But there you go. With a child with special needs who's becoming an adult, you have to think carefully about the guardianship question. I have so many questions from all of you over and over again, virtually every month. Do I have to include my ex-spouse as a co-guardian when I petition for guardianship? So clearly this is gonna be different in every state, but in general, Every state is pretty much the same where if you petition for guardianship alone and your spouse, your ex-spouse is going to get notice of the guardianship because all parents are entitled to notice, they can challenge you on fitness and they can challenge you on their right as a parent to be a guardian or a co-guardian. Well, yeah, it doesn't even have to be fitness. It's just, hey, I'm a parent too. They are entitled. So it behooves you to work these issues out in advance. It is There is no better time than when you are divorcing, even if your child is three or five or nine, to think about this a little bit in advance, or if you can't bear it, when your child is 16 or 15 or 17, start communicating and talking about it. Most families I work with are able to figure out some method of communication. That is not everybody, but really the vast majority have figured out some way to work together even if it's not pleasant, even if they don't love it, they do it for their kids. So figure out how you can communicate, work together so that you can decide whether you're going to be co-guardians or not. And if you're going to be co-guardians, maybe one of you is going to take the lead because there are some things that need to get worked out for your child's lifetime. Maybe you're not going to do guardianship. And that's okay too. Maybe you're going to do powers of attorney, healthcare proxy, or healthcare agency in some way, whatever form that is in your state. For um, the child. For the child. And, you know, you've just got to figure out how you're going to support decision making in whatever form that is for your child. 
And again, who's going to take the lead, how you're going to do that. When, once you have worked out how you're going to support decision-making for your child in what way, what method, then you, I would suggest somehow coming up with some, even if it's an informal agreement, just being clear and writing it down and saying, okay, so this is my understanding of what we've discussed and what we've agreed to, especially on the big issues. Just maybe scoping out a life plan. I think that June or junior should live in this kind of housing arrangement. And here's who I think should pay for it. Because I'll tell you, you get up to that day and all of a sudden XYZ thinks that, you know, A, B, and C should be footing the bill. Big shocker, right? And that's when a lot of conflict arises. And, you know, sometimes it's not even that, oh, I think that my ex-spouse should be paying, but they're shocked to find out that the government's not going to foot the bill for everything. So it's really important that all cards on the table, everything gets discussed. There's usually one parent who does more of the going to the classes or going to the conferences or doing the learning. Not always, but just usually. And, you know, sharing that information can be exhausting. I know in my case, I'm just going to volunteer and tell you that I felt like very resentful that I had to always be the one who was telling the other person everything that I found out all the time. And I, you know, just kept saying, you know, why do I have to be the secretary and report back to you all the time? while you get to lord it over me and then, you know, make the decision. That was me. I was very resentful and, you know, it was a bad attitude and the wrong attitude, I'll admit, but that's how I felt. So I stopped communicating and I stopped sharing information. Well, you can imagine how well that went for me. It, it was not good. It didn't go well at all. So, um, and if any of you have read my book, then you know <laughs> that that didn't go very well. So, um, I would not recommend following in my footsteps. I would recommend, you know, taking the higher ground and working, uh, working a better communication model. And sometimes it takes a neutral third party to help. So having said that, I've learned from my mistakes. And I hope that you can learn from my mistakes as well. So that's guardianship, guardianship and decision making, child support. Child support is a much bigger, hairier deal. So social security is impacted enormously by child support after age 18. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Mark? Well, the, the, the payee, right, is now who? The child support payee? Yeah, who gets paid now? So technically, under the child support rules, the recipient is considered to be the adult child. Mm -hmm. Even though... Even if you write the check to yeah. the other spouse. So there's a huge difference between how Social Security looks at this and how the, the courts 
under the family law rules look at this and they don't social security does not care that the court is looking at this differently so if the child support checks were a thousand bucks a month now the child has twelve thousand dollars of income, income for social security purposes a year right which is a bit of a problem because it knocks them off of ssi consideration entirely right so there is a fix for this but it's complicated eh. it is okay all right so you can use I, you know but i i don't want you to i don't want you to take make the audience think oh it's complicated so i'm not going to do that Life is complicated, and there's sometimes you just have to do some things. It depends on how you want to approach this and address this. There's a self-settled first-party special needs trust called, a, most people call it a D4A trust. It can be called a Medicaid payback trust. It can be called an OBRA 93 trust, all kinds of names. But in general, this trust is a self-settled trust, and... It's, what does that mean? It, it's created and funded with the person, with the disabled person's own money. Which includes the child support. Which includes the child support. You need to be, go to court and get that child support order signed by a judge, ordered into, irrevocably ordered into this trust to, right so the the checks would go to the to the d4a trust and now social security says what the income is not countable and the trust itself if it's well drafted properly drafted is not countable so there's a couple of things to remember first of all the trust itself has a payback clause we mentioned that earlier and um we've also done a, a whole podcast on special needs trusts, which but you can revisit. Just in case people haven't heard, payback just means that on the death of the beneficiary, in this case, the special needs child, whatever's left in the trust first has to go to pay back Medicaid for whatever it's paid. If there's anything left after that, it can go to wherever else, other people and so forth. Now, usually that's not a problem when you're funding with child support payments because those payments are it, needed they and, get they're, used, right. and they're spent. The, the tr yeah, the trust isn't accumulating money unless it's got... I mean, Generally. Yeah, I mean, if there was some sort of a med mal suit that funded it, then that's a different thing. Also, we're generally looking at younger people who don't have um, issues that will likely lead to early death, but those are all things to consider when you're setting this up. So there's that issue. Um, there's the issue of who can actually create and sign the trust, but we generally have a parent when we've got somebody who is doing a child support order. So a parent, a grandparent, a legal guardian, or the person, the disabled person themselves, if they're over 18, or a court can actually right. create the trust. So under all of those circumstances, when we have, when we're going to court for a child support order, we can create this trust. But I really need to emphasize here, the court has to order the child support payments to be paid to the trust 
you can't just write the checks to the trust and have Social Security respect that. And there's certain language that needs to be in the order, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times your family law attorney needs guidance on this issue. So it's really important that once you decide to do this, that you get at least a consultation with somebody who understands Social Security law and can help at least get that order in place for you. Now, having said that, the child support needs to be of sufficient value to make it worth going to court to do all of this because going to court can be expensive. It can take, in our state, certainly several months. If you're already going to court for guardianship, you can tack this on, though. So it can just be an add-on when you're doing other things, um, and it maybe doesn't add a lot of time and expense when you're already working on other stuff. In our state, if both parents agree, they can modify a um, a child support order by agreement without too much fanfare. It's a little bit of extra work, and they do have to decide that they agree, and they're going to you know, submit their financial statements and a bunch of other things. So the parents need to be getting along. But if they are and they want to do this together, you know, it, it doesn't have to be too expensive to be able to get this done. However, there are a number of things that need to be considered. How much of that original child support order, if there are, if there's more than one kid, is going into the trust? Here are some other things to consider. Once the money goes into that trust, that D4A trust, it's not going to that parent anymore. And it can't be used the same way that it was before. The money doesn't go into the D4A trust and then that parent, say the mom, just writes a check to herself and takes it out and spends it on whatever she used to. You can only spend money out of that D4A trust on the kid. So you're not now like just writing a check to yourself and paying your mortgage and paying your car insurance, the mom's car insurance. Right. It has to be very, very strictly for... Sole benefit. So for the, yeah, I mean effectively for the sole benefit of that uh, that special needs child. And I will say this, in, in, in states that really are following federal law, it, there's really not much of a restriction on what the special needs trust can do. Some states, you have to look at your state law, put restrictions on what it can be spent on. The other thing that needs to be considered is that there's a decent chance, you know, every, you know, maybe two or three out of 10 cases that we do this, we'll be in, we'll get a kick, we'll get it kicked back from our social security office because they don't understand their own rules and we'll spend a year fighting with them about the fact that this transfer that we've made is okay. And we have to, we have to battle with them, which we eventually win. But we warn every client, okay, so again, you know, eight, seven or eight times, this goes through, it's fine, 
Of course, we're following the letter of the law, federal law, but because the social, the local social security offices don't always understand their own rules and they don't see this every day, there's a chance that they're going to deny this as a, as a transfer that is unacceptable or a transfer that is penalized. And we're going to have to fight with them. Then we're going to have to go up the chain and appeal it until we get to somebody smart enough to look at the rules and look and at the law. So there's great variability in the local offices. I've had the ex- almost exact same trust just for different clients rejected by one uh, office and accepted by another. So there's great variability there. When you get to the appeals level, Social Security, a lot of very smart people there. So you should be fine, but it can take a couple of years to get there. So what we're saying is you have to recognize that once your child support is going into the trust, you have an increased level of complexity. So the trust itself is, you know, you're running a trust. It's not like taking a check and putting it into your bank account that you then get to spend however you want. The amount of the child support and the longevity of the child support is important to consider. If your child support is going to only go on from age 18 to age 21, and it's $500 a month or $300 a month or just some portion of, you know, whatever, you may want to forego social security payments for a little bit longer until your child support ends because you don't want to have the complexity of going to court and getting this irrevocable assignment of child support, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if your child support order is sizable or if you are the kind of people who really just want your child to get all the benefits they're entitled to, or there are a lot of other factors, you know, there are a ton of factors, including Social Security SSI comes with automatic mass health here in Massachusetts and automatic Medicaid in most states. There are so many factors to consider. You really need to sit down with a special needs planner in your state and weigh all of those factors and balance out whether it's worth it to do that child support order. Sometimes dropping the child support for your special needs kid and just having child support for your other children can make the difference as well. And we've done that too. So there's a lot to consider. Sit down with your family law attorney, sit down with your special needs planner, hopefully you are in concert and in agreement with your ex-spouse or with your soon-to-be ex-spouse and that you are coming to the table with the idea that you are protecting your children and you know trying to make this work even though you, your marriage is breaking up or your marriage is over, you are able to work together as a family for the good of everybody in the family. So... I know that these are very complicated topics and this is not easy to navigate, but I hope that today we've given you some answers to the many questions that I've gotten over the last, I want to say, 8, 12 weeks um, that have been popping through my Twitter feed and my 
um, Facebook page and many various places. Mark, am I forgetting anything that um, is of importance? Well, the one thing that I'm not sure of is if you have minor children and one of them is a special needs child um, and you're going through a divorce now, do you try to build in obligations that say once the uh, special needs child turns 18, we're going to create a special needs child. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Do you bind each other to that now, or is it too complicated now because it's too unforeseeable to see what's going on you know, 15 years from now? Some people do, and I, but I, I don't think people get very specific. I think it depends on your age. Because I think, depending on the age of the parties, they may not have enough wealth built up also mm -hmm. to really predict how they're going to be able to fund a plan, you know? And they may have to come back to the drawing board later to do that. Okay. Make sense? I think so. It's just that, yeah, it's it's so unpredictable. What are our finances going to be like? What are our earning capacities going to be like 15 years from now? What's so our special needs child going to be like 15 years from now? That's the worst because many people cannot predict. Yeah. Most of our special needs kids are not in the profound range, and it's unpredictable what things look like. And many people don't really understand their special needs um, their special needs issues until much later. So things actually come out after the divorce. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, we'll have, you know, autism diagnoses later on or we'll see, you know, mental health issues later on in childhood or um, we'll see, you know, what true functionality we're going to have when kids or teenagers or young adults and then you know we couldn't have predicted that so um in both directions actually good and bad so it's very difficult to plan but we have that issue for intact families as well yes we do all right well this has been an intense intense podcast uh, with a lot of information and a lot of detail. We've got a blog post to go along with this. We will see you all on the flip side. Thanks for joining us today. And hopefully your family's doing well. And if you are going through some tough times right now, we'll be thinking of you. Stay well. Thank you all. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.